Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Looking out for you and yours with our new life and mortgage protection insurance. Well, my first guest this morning, in July last year, just a couple of months after agreeing a new three-book deal with publisher HarperCollins, received the news no woman wants to get, a breast cancer diagnosis. But I'm very happy to say that Cathy Kelly joins me now in studio to tell me all about her new book and to talk about that experience she's been through. Cathy Kelly, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Miriam. And I know you said, people have said it to you, but you do look great. You look really healthy despite all you're going through right now. It's it's almost hilarious because people would come into the house and I would have me there with my bald head because, you know, I lost all my hair. And they'd say, but you look great. And you'd be there going, I feel really rotten. But, you know, it's good that it's looking good. And no makeup. I think I wore no makeup most of the time I was having chemo because I just couldn't have the energy to put it on. Now, I'm conscious there'll be a lot of people listening this morning with similar stories. So do you mind just taking us through your story when you first thought you might have cancer? Take me through it. Well, I um, I have what we call, and all the men will be looking away going, oh God, don't talk about this. I have dense breasts. I mean, sometimes people have said I have a dense head, but I have dense breasts. And when you've dense breasts, it means you spend your life going, oh, it feels a bit lumpy there and I'll get that checked out. So I'd had a... A um, bit of a scare and I'd had it checked out and it was fine. Then I went into the breast check for my, um, I'm a big fan of, of all the, the checks, went into the breast check and I wasn't allowed to have, the, have a scan because enough time had to elapse between these two scans. So they said, you know, come back in six months. And of course, being in Egypt, I didn't. And about a year later, I felt another sort of lumpy area and I thought, I'll ring breast check. I'll get booked in, went in. They were amazing as usual. And then I got the call back. And that's the scary thing, because when you get a call back, you think, OK, what does this mean? So I, I went in on a Monday afternoon and they focused on one breast. And by the time I left, I was pretty sure I had breast cancer. You know, they didn't say absolutely you have breast cancer, but they did a triple biopsy and... I was sort of, by that point, I was expecting it. I don't know whether I'm a catastrophist or not, but I think, you know, one in three people get get cancer and one in eight women get breast cancer. So I thought, OK, this is it. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't fall apart. I just thought, OK, we'll, we'll see where we go. Go back for a minute, because I think most people, most women have breast checks and they know that experience. And the man or woman doing it, did you know by their reaction even when you were watching them? Is that how you maybe guessed that something I was think up? Absolutely, because when I went in the second time, um, they just went onto one. They were just examining one breast. It was my right breast. And I'm and there were two people instead of just one person in the mammogram room. And I was thinking, OK, and, we're, and they, you know, went at it a couple of times. And then you have to sit and wait. And there was a group of women in the waiting room. We were all there for the, the call back. And um, one woman, she was hilarious. She said, I have to go outside for a fag. And I was thinking, oh, God, I better not tell anyone you're going out for a fag. This is not the place. Um, and then when they called me in to do a, then they do a mammogram. And it was obvious there were calcifications. And it seemed to me very obvious that there was something there. And the the um, wonderful person who was doing it, the wonderful doctor, I just, uh, Dr. Louise Coffey, I just could tell from her. And she was very decent 
in the sense that the only way you can absolutely know for sure that you have breast cancer is via a biopsy. But, you know, this woman has looked at enough breasts uh, uh, mm-hmm. on ultrasound machines and she said, you've got to come back in 10 days to see a surgeon. But she said, you know, look, you will be definitely coming back. So I knew. And and that was that was huge for me because I like to know. And I think they are very good at reading the room. They're very good at reading the sort of person, whether mm. you're the one who wants to go, I don't want to know anything and I'll think about it and I need four people with me or whether they're like me, which is I want everything. I want to know everything right now. So, um, yeah. And were you on your own that day? No, PJ, my darling partner, had driven me in. So he was outside and um, and then I had to, that was the hard thing, actually, mm. telling him and telling my boys and telling my family, because I have, I feel I have great strength inside me, which is, OK, I'll deal with this. But you just don't want anyone else to be be worried or stressed or that was incredibly difficult. And, and he was so upset and my f- boys and my family were so upset. But I was saying, no, it's going to be OK. We're going to get through this, which is, is possibly false sort of insanity. But I, you know, after when I went back and I saw the surgeon who was was wonderful, um, he explained what sort of cancer it was. And uh, I, of course, in typical journalistic fashion, had looked up every sort of breast cancer under the under the sun. So I had one called HER2 positive, which is I think it's either between 13 and 20 percent of women get it. And thanks to amazing research, people with this cancer now live. 20 years ago, you didn't live. But now because of a type of immunotherapy drug, you do live. So it's just amazing. So what happened then once you were told you had breast cancer? What was the plan of action and what treatments have you been going through? Well, the plan of action was that I had to see a, after you see the surgeon, normally people have surgery first and chemo afterwards. With this, you have uh, the special immunotherapy drugs uh, in advance with chemo. So I uh, went to see Professor John Crown, who is just an amazing man. Mm. And um, so he started me on this this series of, I was going to have six sessions of chemotherapy with the special immunotherapy drugs. And I was dying to start it. I think not because I wanted to be sick, but because it's like, let's get this going. Mm. I want to get this out of my body. Um, so I had a uh, first session of chemo. And, you know, if you go on the internet, it's full of what to bring on your first chemo session. And actually, it's really just all you bring on a long flight. You know, you sort of, you know, you bring a, a book and you're, you know, whatever, phone. Um, So that was great. And then suddenly about two days later, you're like, oh my God, this is incredible. Um, And I don't mean that in a good way. So I I found chemo very hard for for four sessions, really hard because one of the drugs just had a very bad effect on me. And I I had said to Professor Crown, I said, not be negative, I said, but all the weird stuff is going to happen to me, I said, because that's just been my experience in life. And uh, so, yeah, all the weird stuff happened to me. So I got a port fitted. So a port is the portocath that you get implanted in your chest. There's my little my little port scar there, you see. And um, which is, makes it really handy because, you know, chemo does destroy your veins and it gets very hard to get hold of a vein. Um, so I had that put in and then, of course, that got infected because this is me. And then I got another thing which is called a um, 
a pick line in your arm and one of the rare side effects is that you can get um, clots. So, of course, guess who gets clots? Me. So so I'm still injecting myself every day with anti-clotting medicine. But I, I suppose I took all of it in my stride apart from the very bad sickness of, of chemo. That was that was hard. And, you know, there's there's a point where you you become like this sort of animal being. You're lying in your bed and you're barely human. And that's hard. And that's so hard on the people who are who are minding you and looking after you. And one of my sons, Murray, is in college in London. And so uh, PJ and Dylan, my son who lives with me, I mean, they were seeing the the, the, the rough end of, of, of me being <laughs> grumpy old cow. So are they the lowest moments so far when you've had chemo and you're feeling really sick? Yeah, I think they... They are some of the lowest moments. I think also, and I had, I've always heard about this, that once you've finished chemo, because once you're going through all of that chemo and surgery, this is the ultimate, you're surviving. And suddenly when that's over and you're thinking, then you start to think more about mm. the, the upshot of this. You know, cancer is in your life and, you know, you don't know exactly where it's going to go. I mean, I got a, a pretty good prognosis but there is no such thing as there's no 100% guarantee with with any cancer so you're thinking yeah what does this mean you know four or five years down the road what happens so you do have to to look at your your life again I I found when I had my children suddenly I was aware of mortality because I wanted to be there for my kids number that was it and this made this this I don't know ping so much in my head. I needed to be there for them. They were 20. I needed to be there for PJ, for my beautiful family, my, my sister, my brother, my nieces, my friends. I wanted to be there. And it's not that I was afraid of dying. I just didn't want it to happen quite yet until I had everything sorted out. Do you think it's changed you so far? Like it's only last July you were diagnosed, but has it changed you and changed your attitude to life or not? Um, it has. I think I was always um, the sort of person that looked at the things that were important and it wasn't necessarily, you know, having a nice handbag. But it's definitely made me more aware of what time is is left and, and not wasting that time. And it's made me more, uh, no. I was one of those people who would, oh, not put myself last, but I'd be minding other people. But now I'm going, hold on, I have to I have to look after me. You've got to be selfish a little bit when you've got cancer. You've got to say, do you know what? I'm I'm so tired. I actually cannot do this. Fatigue, I think, changes you. Mm. You're just whacked with fatigue and you've got to say, no, can't do that. And you stop feeling guilty about saying, no, can't do that because you're just not able to do it. So where I am now is I am waiting to go in to have uh, radiotherapy. And, and in a way, I, I, there's a sort of an enthusiasm with me for every new bit. I'm like, oh, I'm having surgery. This is interesting. I wonder what that's going to be like. You know, they're, they're, and I'm like that with radiotherapy as well. It's the, the Nora Ephron. Everything is copy. I'm going, mm -hmm. oh, this is, you know, interesting and it's new. And, and I also think I can talk about it and maybe make it less scary for other people.
I think it's a really courageous decision to do that because some people like to keep their illness private, but you are a public person. And was that a decision you knew would you would make from the get go when you knew you had cancer that you would be public about it? Um, I think in the early stages, I, I didn't know when to come out originally and say, you know, I have cancer because... Um, you know, there's a part of me thinking, you know, who who wants to know whether I have cancer or not? There's a part of me thinking that. Um, and then um, I I know, I mean, I have friends who've gone through cancer and just couldn't bear to speak about the experience mm. again. But my beautiful friend, Emma Hannigan, I know when, when her work, her writing about her cancer was hugely important. And I remember rereading her book, Talk to the Headscarf, you know, early on going, yes, this was... This is dreadful. Um, so I think it's very powerful. And and also, you know, uh, today I'm wearing my lovely wig, but a lot of the time I don't wear my wig and I have now tennis ball, sadly, brown hair. I mean, I haven't seen brown it's hair. It's not grey. Uh, no, no, it's grey and white and all over the shop. But uh, yeah, I, I was hoping it should come out back platinum, but sadly, <laughs> no. Um, so I did have it dyed and I'm going to have it dyed again. They do say you shouldn't dye your hair when it begins to grow back after chemo. And... Apparently that's because, uh, you know, it, it might hurt your hair. And I'm going, the amount of drugs that I've had pushed through me, baby, just a bit of bleach is not going to hurt it. So um, I'm I'm positive, but I'm very aware that I'm lucky to be positive because there are a lot of people who, um, you know, this concept of ringing the, the chemo bell. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, when you finish your chemo, you ring the chemo bell. A lot of people are never ringing a chemo bell because they are living with cancer and they will be having chemo for longer. And it's wonderful in the sense that, you know, um, drug trials and science have got us to a point where people are living much, much longer with cancers that once would have killed them very quickly. But at the same point, it's it's um, that's a very hard battle to, to face. I mean, you mentioned your hair loss. It's a brilliant wig. Like, I would have no idea. I'm not just saying that, but and people often talk about, oh, the difficulty of losing their hair, because I suppose as women, it's a bit of our crowning glory sometimes. Oh, it's, it's huge. Would you know what this, this wig, I got it in that lovely shop in Donnybrook and then my, my friend... Um, Rosemary O'Keefe in Alan Kelville, she cut it for me because Mm. up to then it looked sort of weird and she cut it and it looked fantastic. But when I found out I was going to lose my hair, I was very excited. Not very excited, but I was like, ooh, I can mess with my hair now. So I started cutting it and the, the, you know, the kids in PJ were with me and I was sitting in front of a mirror and we had the, you know, the barber zazzer and I was going, okay, let's cut it this way. And, you know, there came a point when I looked a bit like Grace and Perry, which is not a good look for me, yeah. it turns out. So then we got it into a pixie, but it just wasn't a very good pixie. So eventually I, I just buzz cut it. So there was the, the G.I. Jane thing without the muscles, obviously, um, going on. And that was it was great fun, but it was brown. Obviously, that was the problem. It was brown and I, I you know, I'm against brown. And you mentioned earlier your amazing partner, PJ, and your twin boys. Yeah. They're now 21, are they? They will be 21 in July. Oh, oh my God. beautiful boys. But cancer can be lonely. Mm. Do you find, even though you have this amazing support group in your family, that you can still be isolated or lonely in your own head when you have this diagnosis? Very much so, because it does change you. I said to someone the other day, I said, I, I, I feel changed and they're still sort of looking at me because it it does. It's And it's not just the mortality, it's 
just you've suddenly been in this world where and it's not even the powerlessness because I, I love that, you know, the, the Venn diagram of things you want to, you know, things you want to control and things you can control and that little tiny gap in the middle where they meet. It's not even that. It's just suddenly your life has taken this enormous swerve mm. into the unknown and you're the only one making that journey. But you do, I mean, it's interesting that I, I have a book out called Sisterhood because I found this sisterhood of other people with cancer. Because when I was diagnosed, a few people said, oh, I must introduce you to this person who's gone through cancer. And you suddenly see how important that is because then you're talking to other people and you can say, I've, I, I'm not finding this anti-nausea drug is working. Mm. What have you found? Or, I mean, th- the reason I found out that I had the, the blood clots is this amazing woman I was, um, we were talk- I was talking to on email and she had blood clots. And I said, I emailed her and I said, what did it feel like when you had the blood clots with, you know, and she explained and I went, do you know what? I think that sounds a bit like what I have. So it's very useful. It's And it's just this wonderful group of people who who don't say things like, Ashley, you'll be fine. Because people do say daft things when yeah. you answer. Ash, is that annoying? I know. Or, is, is it annoying? It is annoying. A few people have said, ah, you'll be fine. And you, you're sort of going, and where is your oncology uh, <laughs> registration? I want to see that. Do you know what it is? It's, people just don't know. They don't know what to say. It's such a massive thing. You know, what What do you say to someone who has cancer? I know now what to say. And I, and I did because of my beautiful friend, Emma. But... You know, it's it's a it's a difficult one. What is the right thing to say? You say you know now. Um, I think the thing to say is, I am so sorry about your diagnosis, and you know, if there's anything I can do to help, and then. Sometimes if there's anything I can do to help can be very vague, but, you know, you, you can maybe mm. text them and say, do you know, I was going to cook a veg- vegetarian lasagna for my family. Would you guys be interested in that? Because there are so many things that happen. There's, you know, food, cooking, shopping, you know, yeah. dog walking, uh, all these things go out the window. So practical help yeah. is amazing. I mean, I, I had a friend who came around and, and helped me clean the house. That, that was amazing. And I, I couldn't do anything. I was just sitting there and she was cleaning the house. It was brilliant. My friend Lisa, just yeah. she's in Portugal at the moment. So, yeah, but people, you know, amazing people who do things like that. That's helpful. Or, or don't say, I, yeah, just don't say you're going to be fine because you don't know. And the themes actually in sisterhood, like mental health is yeah. one of the themes. I mean, how much... Did your own experiences inform what, you know, one of the main characters, Lou, refers to as her barking dog? It was interesting because I'd gone to HarperCollins and I wanted to do something different and new and and move because I think if you if you stay stagnant as a writer, it's I don't know, it's it's just bad. I'm always I'm always trying to push myself. Um, against myself, really. Um, so the, writing about anxiety, and I've written about depression and anxiety before, but I really put a massive amount of, not me into Lou in, in the sense that her story is not my story, but I was able to write about anxiety and look at how that, you know, the, the, the barking dog, which is looking at the uh, amygdala at the back of your brain and, you know, the lizard brain. And suddenly that, when you're scared or anxious, that takes over and it's like a barking dog and you've got to calm that barking dog so your frontal cortex can sort of calm down a bit. And she's trying to use all these techniques, but nobody really knows she she has this problem and people don't understand it. So hopefully people can can read this and 
and understand it. And, and hopefully people who have the barking dog, who have generalised anxiety disorder, which is massive in, in yeah. you know, people uh, in world populations. Um, so hopefully they will get a bit of peace and go, it's not just me. Because I think when you read, you want to know it's not just you. That's what you love. I yeah. love about reading to see other people's experience of life. And, and realise that many people share yes. experiences. There's loads of layers to it. There's universal themes as well, which I like. You know, you, there's a lot of talk about boundaries in this book, which a lot of much younger people, I find, they're very into boundaries. But they're better at boundaries because yeah. I didn't think I knew what a boundary was. I thought a boundary was a boundary <laughs> fence around a house. I Me didn't realise that you could have a personal boundary or if someone stood too close to you, you could say, you could feel, do you know what? I need you to move off because I don't like this. Some people actually use physical boundaries. They can stand very close to you in an intimidating way. But boundaries are able to say no. Just no, and no is a full sentence. I mean, I'm 57 and really it's only recently it's occurred to me this is a full sentence. You don't have to say, no, I can't come to your party because I'm really tired and, you know, I'd rather, you know, chew my own leg off. You can just say, no, thank you. End of story. So it's it's very, very powerful. And Lou has no boundaries and she lets people walk all over her. And it's about suddenly realising that. When you're writing now, would you inevitably be writing about the experience you've just gone through or not? Or will you park that? No, do you know what? The book I'm writing at the moment, it does have cancer in it. and But I'm trying to be, and, and I do not want to insult anyone by saying this, but I'm trying to put some of the black humour mm. that helped me get through cancer in it. Because there, there can be mad humour. I mean, the, you know, the number of us we talk about how we don't want to be, we're, we're sick of it being a battle because, you know, after all, you don't battle, we'll say pneumonia. No one says battle pneumonia there now, love. Yeah. I, and I had pneumonia at one point and I know battling pneumonia means getting loads of IV drugs and lying there in the bed like a big slug. Um, and the journey, we need another word for, for journey because mm. we're all sort of tired of journey. I always think that's so interesting because the battling thing is the notion that if for those women like your friend Emma Hannigan who weren't lucky enough to survive this yeah. horrible disease, it's like people don't battle enough. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. I mean, cancer is yeah. is a phenomenal illness that it just cuts through like a scimitar mm. and not everyone is going to make it. So the fact that we can somehow put our hand up and, and stop the scimitar is is a little bit silly. As we come to the end of this interview, Cathy, do you find, do you wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night and sometimes wonder if you actually do have cancer? Like, do you have to sometimes think and realise this is my reality at the moment? It's a very strange reality. A very good friend of mine said, you have to look at your life now through the prism of cancer. Whereas previously I didn't have to. And... um that's yeah, that's that can be hard sometimes because I am a different person. I get very tired now. Um, you know, chemo takes a long time to leave your body. I'm going to be tired when I have radiotherapy. And that can be, without wishing to sound stupid, annoying because I, I have things to do. And I say, I but I want to, I have to fold the laundry. Um, you know, they're never exotic things, you know, unfortunately. Um, and look at the floor, it's a mess. But yeah, it's a it's a different thing. But I'll tell you what I what I do have, and I say this absolutely. I have such gratitude for you know 
the 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 people who looked after me, Professor Crown, his team, the nurses, the doctors, the A and E people. The night I was in A and E, all these amazing people who were so incredibly kind. My family, the boys, PJ, Murray and Dylan, my mom, my sister, my brother, who were there for me. Mm. Huge, and I have huge gratitude for the fact that we live in a country where I can get these drugs, where I can get a very expensive immunotherapy drug and that science has reached that point. I love science. I'm really interested in it. And I have huge gratitude for that. And for whatever, whatever happens next, I am, I am really, I'm grateful. You know, it's, it's going to be good. Well, as I said at the very beginning, you do look great. You're exactly <laughs> the same Cathy I've interviewed before. Thank you very, very much for sharing your story, Cathy. I think it matters to so many people, especially to many women listening who may have the disease right now, like yourself. I hope you make a full recovery. Thank you so much. And I'll much. chat to you then. And your book, Sisterhood, it is a great read. It's by you, Cathy Kelly, and it's published by Harper Collins right now. Thanks so much, Cathy. Mind yourself. Thank you so much, Miriam. Uh, congratulations to Cathy Tim says, and many thanks for such an uplifting story. As a fellow cancer person, I really appreciate her reassuring attitude to the great advances of modern medicine. Well done to both Cathy and Miriam for a great interview. And Siobhan says, how wonderful to hear Cathy speaking about her diagnosis and treatment. She's so upbeat. I went through similar and was fascinated by each stage of treatment. Most people couldn't understand why I was so cheerful. We're lucky to have been diagnosed in recent years with the treatments that are available. Again, lovely to hear her. I wish her well. I am five years on from my treatment and enjoying life. My hair has also grown back dark brown, but I did dye it two years after treatment. Good luck to her. Well, that's lovely, Siobhan.